Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Lane Green, the Deputy Books and Arts Editor. With me today to talk about his new book is Richard Cockett. Richard's an editor here at The Economist in London, and he was our Southeast Asia bureau chief from 2010 to 2014. His new book is called Blood, Dreams, and Gold, The Changing Face of Burma. Richard, I want to start by asking you, why publish this book now? Because we have a make-or-break election on November the 8th. Um, could be a real turning point in Burma's recent history. It should be the first relatively free and fair election for almost 50 years, and certainly since the end of direct military rule. It'll be closely watched, and the NLD, the Opposition National League for Democracy, could well win a majority at the election, and that could really kind of shake up Burma's politics. You mentioned that the NLD may well win the upcoming elections outright. Give us a sense of what day N plus one will look like if that happens. I'd be very surprised if the NLD won less than, say, 50% of the votes um, in Parliament. So 25 of the seats are military appointees, and you need three-quarters of the Parliament to change the Constitution to get meaningful political change in the country. The military virtually have a lock on power because of that. So even if the NLD gets, say, 50%, Impressive, but that's not enough. And furthermore, the rest of the seats, probably 20%, will be taken up by the ethnic minority parties. And the danger of this is entrenches the existing ethnic group divisions within the country. So what you'll have is an NLD, mostly Burman. You'll have a Shan party, Karem party, a Chin party, and then a military bloc which means basically that it might not result in very much change in the country and certainly not the constitutional change that it needs. So I predict months and months of horse trading ahead as they try to work what alliances might work best between the NLD and some of the ethnic groups. And the identity of the president, the next president, is very unclear as well. Okay, but let's go back a bit. You start by dealing quite a lot with the colonial history of Burma and explain to us why that's so important to understanding where we are today. Well, I'm a historian by training, so I have a predisposition to look historically at subjects. A lot of Burma's current problems flow directly from the imposition of colonial rule by the British over the course of the 19th century. And in that position, it rubbed up against the Burman Empire. And from the 1820s, they began to uh, have friction along the Burman-Indian border. And this led eventually to all-out war. The British won the first Anglo-Burman War. And then during the course of the 19th century, the British gobbled up more and more of the country and then invaded the whole place by 1885. And part of British rule was the mass immigration of people to um, Burma under the British open door policy, making Burma into one of the richest and most prosperous uh, colonial nations of Southeast Asia, but at the same time radically changing the population demography of the country. 
uh, and creating deep divisions between the indigenous Burmans and the millions of incomers. And those tensions and divisions remain to this day and have caused a lot of conflict and warfare in the 100, 150 years since. And it's the same with the other great division in the country, which is between the indigenous Burmans and the other indigenous groups, such as the Kachin and the Chin, and they tended to benefit from colonial rule. And these divisions all remain in the country today. And one election is not going to cure or resolve any of those very long-standing problems. In about 2011, the ruling generals suddenly decided to start opening the country up to the surprise of a lot of the international community. And they've allowed some limited elections so far and have also been pushing forward some uh, political reforms since 2011. You spend your last chapter assessing those reforms. What's your conclusion? How far has the country come? I think the country has done pretty well in a very limited space of time. They've released almost all political prisoners. They've lifted uh, most censorship. They held the first free and fair elections, by-elections in 2012. They've done quite a lot of economic reforms. They've tried to improve the rule of law, etc. Now the situation is more nervous. People are waiting to see which way things will go. Another way to judge it all, though, is to compare it with the region, which is what I do in the book. And here, I think the achievements of Burma over the past two or three years are, are pretty impressive. For instance, Burma shares a long border with Thailand. Thailand has been regressing like mad over the past couple of years. In the old days, when I was there five or six years ago, you know, you used to meet a lot of Burman exiles, political dissidents. They'd run away from Burma. Now you meet quite a lot of Thai dissidents and exiles in, in Yangon, in Burma, saying, you know, how lucky we are to be able to get out to a relatively free country. And it's the same if you look at Vietnam, very strict, very regressive in terms of human rights. There is a very strong disposition in the region for authoritarian control, for a lack of pluralism and for the same guys to be in charge for a very, very long time. In fact, what Burma is trying to do is quite exciting and quite novel. And I believe we have to judge Burma by those standards rather than hoping that it might become some perfect liberal democracy just because we've all been bamboozled by Aung San Suu Kyi and her appearance in the West and how she seems to be such a sort of upstanding and outstanding advocate and advertisement for human rights. You rightly call Aung San Suu Kyi the most famous political prisoner since Nelson Mandela, and yet you're also a bit critical of her in the book. And tell us a bit more about that. Yes, I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi, undoubtedly the most famous Burmese person in the world and probably, you know, one of the world's most famous politicians, full stop. She became, you know, a, a very necessary burning symbol of opposition to military rule. But I argue that those very qualities that made her such a successful beacon for democracy and opposition focus to the military since the change in 2011, those qualities have served her less well. So resolution can come to be inflexibility that she's unable very much to change course despite all the circumstances around her changing. Her 
sort of indomitable spirit, etc., looks more like now that she won't take advice. She's very single-minded, and again, that served her well when she had one message to keep democracy alive during the 1990s and 2000s. But now when she has to negotiate with different groups, she'll have to form policies on economics or social policy or foreign policy subjects she actually has very little experience of. So in that sense, you know, the transition from heroine of democracy to a politician has been a rough one. And there's one other criticism of her is that she hasn't been standing up for other persecuted minorities in Burma. During the past two years, one minority in particular, the Rohingya Muslims, have been ruthlessly persecuted by the majority, the Burman Buddhists and Rakhine Buddhists just as other ethnic minorities in the country have been disappointed that she hasn't stood up for their rights against the Burman military. So I think she's lost quite a lot of political credibility in the country and certainly outside the country. Well, many people say that one of the reasons to pay attention to the future of this country, which has been isolated and impoverished by decades of misrule from the generals, is that it lies strategically in a vital position between the new rising powers of India and China. Do you agree with this analysis of why Burma really matters? Yes. I mean, in good times, it provides um, perfect routes between the two of them. Already, the Indians are developing a lot of sort of infrastructure projects in the west of the country. The Chinese, for a long while, have been developing infrastructures in the east of the country. So there is a theory that um, Burma could be a very good locus of cooperation. And there's also a fear that um, Burma could become the locus for a new great game. America has become very interested in Burma as it attempts to offset the Asian expansion. There's also a fear that Burma could get sucked into a wider confrontation between America and China. So it could go both ways. So that's very interesting to watch. That was Richard Cockett, who was the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief for The Economist from 2010 to 2014, talking to me about his new book, Blood, Dreams and Gold, The Changing Face of Burma. The book has just been released by Yale University Press. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.